Hello again and welcome to another episode of Voices from SA. My name is Nicholas Claude. I hope all is well wherever you are. My guest this week is Edgar Kasanene. Edgar works for the software developer Retro Rabbit, where he is the CEO for the rest of Africa. I met uh, I met Edgar a few years ago uh, when we were both uh, at Ericsson, the Swedish telecommunications company. It was great to catch up with him and get a sense from him of how technology will impact governments, societies, and countries across the continent, and also how little it seems we are prepared for the changes that, according to him anyway, are inevitable. The discussion ties in nicely, I think, with the chat I had last week with Victor Stefanopoli from Mzanzi Sat, with a discussion focused really on uh, internet infrastructure and access, in this episode, Edgar and I talk about the application layer, and particularly in how apps will affect the way we consume and communicate. So please now enjoy my chat with Edgar. Edgar, thanks, sir. Thanks for seeing me. Um, it's uh, good to catch up. Uh, we uh, met quite a number of years ago now at... Uh, Ericsson, yes. at the offices here in Johannesburg, where you were constantly traveling around sub-Saharan Africa, meeting yes. various governments and organizations. Um, and you've now joined a company called Retro Rabbit. Yes, yes. And um, I just wonder if you could maybe start off by telling me a little bit about Retro Rabbit and what it is you're doing. Thanks, Nick. It's been a it's been quite an interesting journey. I mean, I remember the days from Ericsson working very, very, uh, trying to drive new innovation and new business models in Ericsson. And I think part of that journey is probably one of the reasons I'm at RetroRabbit. So RetroRabbit is, um, we're a software solutions company. In simplicity, um, what's happening right now in most businesses is as consumers expect a different experience, a more simplistic experience, there's a big talk and hype around digital transformation. In essence, what digital transformation is, is just simplifying your, your customer touch points and making the experience easier so I can access my banking on my phone And as a simplistic example. Um, and in order to go down this journey of digital transformation, you have to create all these platforms, uh, these applications on the front end and on the back end, and that needs a lot of software. Uh, so we work a lot with partners, initially in the fintech space, but now in almost every industry, uh, to create a new experience for their customers. In essence, to make the customers have a lot more convenience, simplicity, choice, personalization in their experience. Um, and that world is, as we see it, as we'll probably unpack in a lot of the other conversations, uh, is exploding. Uh, so Retro is very, very exciting in that space. So we're we're about 250 people in South Africa. We're just now, my mandate is to grow us in Africa. Very excited mm -hmm. about that. We just cool. started in Uganda. Uh, we're in a lot of interesting conversations. Um, uh, and, but we also see a lot of possibilities. But we, we see a lot of growth because we see that a lot of the, a lot of the industries uh, mm -hmm. or substrates are happening in every country. Mm. And maybe we'll unpack across that the region. Across the region, mm. yeah. I mean, uh, I, th I think when we first uh, bumped into each other, you were doing quite a bit of work in Rwanda, in Kigali, in, in particular. Yes. And that has, I think, become a kind of benchmark in a way yes, as, yes. A, as, a, as a country that is seized or, or looks to be sort of seizing. The, the opportunities yes. of technology yes, to yes. improve society. Is that a, is that a, no, is it's that a, very, a, is, very is that a trend you're seeing yeah. across the, the, the subcontinent? I wish it was faster. I mean, I think to your point of Rwanda, the leadership was very, very deliberate, um, given their environment, their constraints, and their history, uh, to find a way to accelerate the, their growth, but also to reposition themselves. Um, uh, and they decided to focus on technology, and I think it's worked so well for them. Uh, in so many aspects, uh, it's one of the countries where you can almost simplistically do something. You can show up and register a company in less than 24 hours. Most government services are online. Uh, it's a simple touch point to solve a problem. But what is also more interesting is that it now positions them as a thought leader mm. from an ICT perspective. Mm. And that creates a lot of opportunities for engagements, partnerships, uh, outsourcing or exporting skills. 
Um, and also, they were very, they learned very quickly that technology can make you leap. Um, you can skip steps. Sort of skip generations. Skip generations, in a, in exactly. A and there are very many examples in Africa, like mobile money, what it did for financial inclusion. But at least in Rwanda specifically, they realized that you know, you're le not having legacy infrastructure, um, you can skip that and start to solve problems much faster with technology. Mm. What's interesting about Rwanda is one of the first countries in the world to do medicine deliveries with drones. Uh, and you wouldn't right. expect that for an African country. There's so many other examples about them. But I can say to your point or to your question uh, that they have been a fantastic example that I think a lot of other countries in Africa are slowly now beginning to appreciate. Mm. And back to my personal journey, I think that engagement in Rwanda also, I think, opened my eyes a little bit to the possibilities. And probably this is where my innovation journey started. Mm. Um, yeah, because I suppose in a sense... Um, coming from Ericsson, which yeah. has such a, a long and, and illustrious, I suppose, history, one would say, in, in, in sort of modern telecommunications, to Retro Rabbit is a, is a kind of leap in, in so many different ways. I mean, what, yeah. what, what, how do you explain That's the... That's a big change. <laughs> how do you explain the, the difference both in... I mean, I walk in, there's a kind of, you know, nothing says hip as, 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 as yeah. much as a unisex bathroom and a, an open plan <laughs> office. Yeah, look, we, we really try and stay. Actually, our philosophy is getting better, so we really try to uh, not define or create boundaries. We really try to create an environment where we're always learning and getting better. Uh, but you ask very much about the shift uh, from Ericsson to Retro. Um, and I went on a personal journey after the, the whole Rwanda engagement. And that personal journey was, you know, when you really are trying to figure out how do you create innovation and new value in companies, um, the world started to become clearer in terms of not just, it's not just a technology shift, it's a user behavior shift. And that shift meant that users were now looking at value in a different sense. So value is moving away from the infrastructure to all, for lack of a better word, the application layer. Mm. Uh, and, and, and when you can link, you can connect a lot of dots. When, when Apple launched the iPhone, uh, what started to happen is that we intuitively started to solve more problems on our phone. And that aspect of taking an, a solution with you everywhere drove a new level of convenience in our minds that most companies couldn't intuitively link. When you added the fact that the internet now became ubiquitous, the amount of convenience and applications and the amount of things you could intuitively solve on the move started to increase. And this is why we talk about cloud computing. What cloud computing just simply meant is that I no longer needed to keep mm. my data in you can physical. You access your data yeah, you anywhere, can anytime. access the data. Mm. All those things... Uh, there is a link. All those things started to drive in consumers an expectation that I want to access and solve my problems on the move anywhere, which meant that one of the ways that you can do that was the fact that in order to have cloud services, internet needs to be available everywhere so that I can continue this world of experience that I love. Uh, but when internet started to, when I say there's a, there's a correlation, when 3G happened and when LTE started to happen, the ability to get good internet in a lot of places increased. Ironically or intuitively, that meant that people could build even more applications because now the connectivity, the speed, the convenience is higher. And when that happens, what many com companies didn't understand is that it even started to drive more expectation of convenience, simplicity. So we call it the exponential effect. And where we are today in the exponential effect is that the digitally born companies have completely changed our lives, our expectation of service. And this is why you start to see what you call this disruption that's happening in society. Um, so why I explain that journey is that in 2015, when LTE started to become a thing... Long-term evolution. Long-term, yeah. Just, uh, 4G, for yeah. lack of a better word. Many people... Uh, faster internet. Faster internet. When it started to become a thing, uh, what... Tele telecommunications companies, or what we started to see in Ericsson was that there was a higher uptake of data because suddenly uh, the speed and simplicity of solving things went up, but also that was the start of a higher uptake of digital services to the point that digital services are now normal. So if you go back maybe five, eight years ago, Skype was a thing. 
So when 3G happened and we all started to get excited because we could make a Skype call, a VoIP call. Uh, and, and voice over IP. Voice yeah. over IP. And that was like, oh, this is so cool. You know, I can now make a call without having a physical, you know, connection. I, I'm making it over the internet. Uh, and so that was the start of new applications that were built on the internet, for lack of a better word. Now everything is built on the internet. But what it does, Nick, is that it means that if you're not giving me a service digitally, you're not in my life. It also means that the infrastructure that provides the internet exponentially loses value every day because we expect it to be given. Mm. And if you start to connect the dots, the last point is that that's why if you look at the world today, people talk about the GAFA, Google, Amazon, all of them heading towards a trillion dollars in valuation, while every other industrial company is losing revenue because those guys have taken our lives our entire day because they're always solving a problem because Nick and Edgar and Tom and Lebo all want it intuitively on the move, simple, convenient choice. Um, you talk about infrastructure and I suppose that's the sort of contradiction of all of this is that it seems to me that the country's building, or sorry, the company's building infrastructure are not earning anything yes. from that infrastructure yes. and yet they are continuing to build that infrastructure. Yes. Um, and, and that, so, so, I mean, where does that end? And that's the conundrum. Because so, they're going to stop spending money at some point, or? Well, yeah, so I, I, my, my view... And will, will, a, will, will, will Facebook now start building So, But they've networks. already started. So they've already started. A few years ago, they've been experimenting. So, and these are my personal views, Nick. So please, when somebody listens to this, they don't say this, this is a rocket science. If you think about why... Facebook and Google have been in infrastructure experimenting with the balloons and uh, you know trying to build Wi-Fi. Well, Amazon with the, Amazon, the satellites. Yeah, it's because it's a simple model. We monetize, we add value to your life when you're online. Their frustration was that as their client base grew around the world, they felt in a lot of emerging markets, there are not enough people online. So how do they accelerate that journey? In my personal opinion, if it wasn't for regulators, Facebook would have bought an MTN a long time ago and given away the infrastructure. The only reason they, they, they didn't take that route to buy the telco companies is that they do not want to have to deal with the regulation because every country has their regulator mm. and it's a, it's, a, it's a long, tedious process. It slows down their acceleration. So they've tried other things. So they've started to experiment on other things. You need to understand it's not only Facebook and Google doing this. SpaceX is launching satellites every other day. There are about three or four companies around the world they're trying to find models to make internet ubiquitous. Coming back to your point of infrastructure, it's not about the fact that the infrastructure is not important. It's just about the fact that companies are struggling with the fact that value has shifted. Hmm. So 10 years ago, the infrastructure was incredibly valuable because our need was simply voice calls. It was simple communication. As our needs became digital, what is, we actually want is the internet. So, and we don't want to pay for the internet. So if you look at a typical infrastructure provider, they went from understanding that their voice was declining when VoIP started happening and Skype and, and WhatsApp to that they were going to sell data. But data is also declining revenues because we do everything digitally. Nick, by next, every week you spend more data. Every year you spend 10 times more data. You're not going to pay 10 times more for the price. So what it does, it commoditizes the infrastructure. Mm. To the point that if you fast forward five years, in my opinion, Governments will be providing the infrastructure that's a subsidy because it will be so critical to society. So you look at an ESCOM. ESCOM is not, they're not 10 electricity companies. Electricity just powers everything in your life. Data is going to power everything in our lives. It's already doing that. The companies that, it won't be a business model. The business model will be on the stuff that you build on top that powers our lives. But you say the government will be subsidizing internet access. I honestly think in five years it will be free. But again, don't quote me. I'm a little bit radical, but we see the trends. And the re only reason why I say that I think in five years it will be free is that there's enough experimentation going on for unlimited internet spectrum. If you look at a young person today, he doesn't think. He just wants Wi-Fi. There is no, for them intuitively, this is a given. We're getting to a point where data will be like water. So it becomes critical for society, and we can come back to the point of how it becomes critical for society, but there is no model for it. So there's no model, there's no model, because what will happen is that if I use 10 times more data next year, if I'm paying you 1 GB at 150 Rand, next year I'll expect to pay 15 Rand for it. And that data, that, that, the volumes is not going to become slow, it's not going, it's going exponential because the next year it's another 10 times because now we're all in, we're now in virtual reality experiences, we're in augmented reality experiences. 
So 15 mm. rand becomes 1.5 rand. There's no model. And this is why if you look at the industry per se, and let's not make this about the telecoms industry, it has been constraining the last five years. The, the, the curve started happening. The last point on the industry is that if you look at the biggest industry players on infrastructure, companies like AT&T like three, four years ago already started saying, we're not an infrastructure player, we're a digital player, we're competing with Google, not Verizon. That's why AT&T spent 85 billion, because they realized we will never be able to monetize this anymore. It will just be an enabler for everything else. So the million dollar question is that, and let's not make this about MTN and Vodacom, where do they go next? You don't want to pay for data, I've just explained why. And it's, this is a logical thing, it's not even an Edgar thing. And if you go off the record, if you go and speak to wholesale providers, they'll tell you how every year, they're being asked to reduce their prices of connectivity by 90%. Mm. It's not sustainable. Well, I mean, even the fact that, and I think we, we chatted about this uh, when we had a coffee a couple of weeks back, that people still pay for voice in this or, or still ch being charged for voice yeah. uh, in this country, in this continent. I mean, I suppose we're not the only country where yeah. voice is charged, but I mean, in most European countries and yeah. the United States, I mean... You, it's, the, yeah, it's given away. Yeah. yeah, and we, we so we and that will happen with data as well. No, it will happen with data because intuitively this is why Facebook and all these guys are launching the satellites. Why this is happening is because our behavior is completely digital, and the, what powers digital is data. So we have to enable this, but it's even more strategically important than that. So if you go back and ask me about Retro Rabbit, we don't intuitively own any proprietary software. We basically leverage smart capabilities or smart human beings to create solutions. And all we do is go online and use open source software and Google to solve the answer, which is data. So we, we are creating incredible value as a software company. And the only thing that we need to power that apart from the internet is a creative mindset. Smart people. Yeah. And, and, it's, and it's not so much smart people. It's, it's, it's creative people, people who think about solving problems, not looking for a job. This is the biggest problem we have in society. When society was very linear and closed, the journey was to train somebody in a specific domain and he goes and looks for a job. Now society is open and I'll, I'll explain the model of society being open because Anybody. You mean you're talking about a sort of specific defined job description yes. as opposed to being yes. a creative? Yes, in retro we don't. So even, Nick, it's already playing out. It's just not intuitive to society in South Africa yet. It's not intuitive to the leaders. Every other day if you go online, major corporations in the U.S. are removing a university degree as a requirement for a job. And that's happening because they realize you actually do not need somebody to have a university degree. You need somebody mm -hmm. who is thinking quite smartly because all the tools are there. I've actually got uh, I'm, 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 I've got a, a, a an, ex, an experience a real life example of that with yeah. the, the son of my yeah. my very good friends who's yeah. just left school and he's he's not he doesn't see the necessity I think he's doing some programming courses yeah exactly and he's becoming a, a field guide game ranger and he wants to combine those two and he's going to do his own thing 100 percent so let's take it to first principles because I've been doing a lot of conversations on this and and for us for me it was an important first principles what what I mean is that let's unpack why that's playing out so like you know mm. why a university degree is no longer an issue I like to try and say less because one of the things the passions I have now is a, is that I speak a lot to companies and executives and boards about innovation. And I'm also challenging them to see the world differently. So where I say, let's take it first principles. If you think about society, go back 20 years, 50 years, however back how much you wanted to go back, our sense of relevance as a human being was the knowledge we had. So for example, I have two degrees in engineering. Uh, my relevance in society was because I worked hard, did high school, got into a good A-level degree, got A-level marks or matric marks, went and did a university degree, and had an engineering capability. You would only be able to have that capability if you had followed that path, because it was only specific schools that right. taught engineering. It was there only was specific modules that taught engineering. The internet changed that. Linear, it was uh, very linear, but the internet changed all of that. And I'll, ex I'll explain, coming back to the example of your son. So what happened with the internet is that Suddenly, not my son, some friends of mine. Son. Yes, but suddenly, knowledge was no longer limited to a specific domain hmm. or experience. If you think about it intuitively, think about a kid today who is born. When I, the first example of knowledge or the first 
aspect of knowledge was maybe seven or eight when I could read a book and I started to go to library. I mean, some of us got internet in the 20s. But our, our journey for knowledge or acquiring knowledge was very linear. Today, a child is on YouTube by two. By four, he has consumed more information than you consume by the time you're 40. So what's happening in society is that the, the kids have grown up in a world when information is no longer restrict, restricted, it's ubiquitous. If, I talk, if, I'm, if I'm a young child and like, I want to figure out about flying a plane, I just go and watch about 10 YouTube videos. And in about a month, intuitively, I'll do that. Yeah, it's, that, it's, it's, it's kind of that, that whole path to curiosity and yes. creativity is, yes. is, is kind of a very individual thing in a way. Yes, but it's also because they no longer are limited to what they can access. We were. We talk about professions because professions were not, you couldn't just wake up and say, I'm going to go to the bar. You would never know anything about a lawyer. Today, if I'm in a case, I could literally go and represent myself. I could spend one month on the internet reviewing cases, getting data, getting examples, getting precedences without being a lawyer. And I'll, if, I'm, if I'm determined enough, and I'll have enough data because it's open. So that's the point. People are not seeing that we're now in a world that is open. And the younger generation, they get it. So they grow up every day with much more choice than us. And this is why we don't connect to them, because we try to limit them in a world where my knowledge was unique to me. Your knowledge is not unique. And this is why creativity to the point and curiosity is more important than knowledge or qualifications. But are you saying, I mean, in that context, then, are you saying that perhaps in 15, 20 years' time, we'll have people offering medical services that have never been to a, a medical but already, school? But it's already happening. So there are already, there are already applications out there that can self-diagnose. I mean, there's already debates in some countries where, they're, where they will, because today the only reason you need a general practitioner is to get a prescription. If I'm ill, I have to go to see the doctor, say I have a headache or I have, these are my symptoms. Today there are already applications that will read, you'll input your symptoms and you don't even have to input them manually. You can use voice recognition to talk about your symptoms and it will calculate the equivalent of consulting a million doctors in 30 seconds. And it will tell you with 99.9 .9 accuracy, Nick, this is your likely this is what you're likely suffering from. And what they want to do is that medically certify those applications so you can use that as a prescription. But I mean, somebody could just make up their symptoms, right? Yeah, but this, so is, you why, have to have some sort but of this is where AI and machine learning comes in. Because intuitively, what will happen is that what's happening with AI and machine learning is that we're learning from data points. So you will be learning as people give you input. And even with time, you learn that somebody can say this and this. Let me add one or two more questions. Why I'm explaining this, Nick, is that there is no domain today where already people are not experimenting to solving these problems digitally. None. And this is why in society today you already see these challenges. So let's, let's take it back again, not first principles. Let me give you my direct example. I have two degrees in engineering. Most engineers today are losing their job in telecoms companies because Ericsson and a lot of the telecom companies, when we used to start, we used to design these networks, configure them, optimize them, look at traffic patterns, and, and decide I need this much upgrade. Today, Ericsson has invested in so much AI and machine learning that the nodes can self-optimize and self-design. They're learning from the traffic patterns themselves. Hmm. So you don't need a human being anymore to sit there. To monitor, to it's monitor monitoring this. itself. Yes, it's monitoring itself. And it could fix itself. Yes, that's what's happening with AI, because what's, what AI does is that it allows you to learn from data points and read, read Retweak the software or retweak the configuration. So let's not let's not go down that road. But the point about the open world. So coming back to the guy's sign is, that I try to make people see that in a world that's open, you can access any information. What's important is how hungry are you. Hmm. So even retro, bringing it back to retro in Uganda, and I suppose you have to have some sort of level of literacy as well. Yes. So. Yeah, so, but the basics are there. So, so, for example, when they say that they don't need a university degree, they probably think you do need to know how to read and write. But you don't need to go down the line of, I'm a physics guy or I'm a chemist guy. You just need to have a mind where you can say, if this is a problem, this is how, this is how I solve, solve it. it. And two younger people, we were having a conversation yesterday with one of our partners. This is exactly how young people behave because they've grown up in a world of information. Young people are not like us. Us, we overthink things. So if this is a problem, we think, Oh, but if I solve it like this, what is he going to think? Who am, am I going to upset that person? But this is not linked to my job description. For them, their world is very simple. Problem, solution. <laughs> and that's why they're disrupting. Problem, solution. And you see it in retro. You know, in retro, we're engaging with a media company. 
a legal company that's trying to create a digital platform, a factory to change, to automate their, their back end and their front end, a bank, an insurance company. We're in every single domain. Before I left Ericsson, I had no clue about these industries. And I also don't need to have a clue. I just speak to the CEO about where is your business and what are your pain points. I come back and speak to my team and we build a concept. Because you can. You can do research on the industry. You can do research on the competition. You can do research on what will make their business faster. You can do it online. Um, just to talk about the, the people that you are are uh, recruiting. Yeah. Um, curiosity. Creativity. Creativity. Um, do we have an infrastructure, an educational and societal kind of structure that encourages those things in, in South Africa? Because I think that's one of the concerns. No, and, and that's I a very good have. question. Yeah, I mean, that's a very good question. So. A lot of the conversation, you know, when we talk about the, the digital era is also the open world is that we were intuitively not prepared for this. So none of our, none of our institutions uh, or regulatory frameworks prepared us for a world where we encourage creative and curiosity. Everything prepared us for a world that was extremely linear. So let's take the education system because it's a very important conversation. The big challenge we have in society today is that our education system is still preparing us for a world that was very linear. In South Africa in, in South particular. Yeah, and in particular in South Africa. The subcontinent. Yeah, but what's also interesting in South Africa is that, and I won't mention the schools, that if you go to one or two private schools, uh, they are ready, and just because of sensitivity I won't mentioning, they are already reinventing their curriculum. Mm. Where I spoke to a principal of one of the, the, the top private schools in South Africa because we were exploring our son going there, and she was talking about how the personalized learning, because it's not so much important anymore to, to teach a child, to, to get a child to go down one path. What's more important is to figure out very early in his journey, what are the things that trigger him? What are the things that excite him? What, where, where does his curiosity go? And then you, you encourage that, because intuitively then they start to grow up with a mind that's more curious. And intuitively they see that those children have a higher percentage of being relevant in a world where your jobs will not be a thing. Mm. Where, you have to be in a, where you will have tools to create. So in South Africa, we have to have honest conversations about the education system. And it's not personal, Nick. It's just the change. I think my concern there is, you know, we talk about closing the digital divide through technology, and, and you now talk about private schools being at the yes. cutting edge of this shift, which yes. would, is creating, again, another elite no, of course. Um, and, in society. And yes. so I still don't see the benefits of this No, but technology. that's why I use private schools exactly to the point that it's sad that one or two top schools who have the resources can think of it. The bigger problem, like you said, the bigger conversation is that we need to be having this conversation in all our education system. So we need to really repurpose our education system. Secondly, you need to understand, like they're doing in Rwanda, that it is not optional not to give kids access to the internet. You want to make South Africa more creative and more productive. Wherever the child is intuitively, he should be able to access these resources. Because what we don't understand is that these kids are grown up intuitively in this environment. So they will pick up extremely fast. Let's not even talk about kids. We see it in retro. Even when we bring in people in their 20s, because 20s is fairly old in my opinion, and we put, in them this in, environment. This, put them in this environment, six months later they're completely different. Now imagine you do that for a six-year-old boy who is completely, his, his foundation is he's still fresh. What, how much more speed and value are you going to create? And, and, and I think, Nick, that's an important conversation. Bridging the digital divide is no longer optional. Putting people online is allows them to create, then creating an environment where the education system is not constrained, but challenges creativity, curiosity, experimentation. That's what accelerates growth and the economy. Because I still, and, and I had this um, chat with uh, uh, Victor last week, I still struggle. You know, there's all this talk about healthcare, education, yes. you know, how, how technology yes. and the internet's going to impact all of these things, particularly in sort of poorer, country, less develop, developing nations, however you want it to say it. I still don't see it. Yeah, so, but I still do not look, see I mean, it. No, so, I mean, and this is why it's not happening, because intuitively we're not connecting the dots. We're making technology a buzzword conversation, and I tell you this from just my experience in retro, rather than using it to solve problems. But it's also, Nick, because, and this is not personal to a lot of the leadership, is that they didn't grow up, the same way we talk about education systems, most of our leaders today we're not primed to see this new world. Mm. Their mindsets, and it's not personal, are very restrictive. 
because of the, they also grew up in the same system, the whole education system, the way they went well, through the career. Well. Yeah, and even not even making it personal to apartheid, because apartheid created a little bit more of a social problem. So, I mean, of course, there was an elitism in the country that one race accessed the resources. But it's not even just about black and white. It's about the fact that even top senior white people grew up in an education system that didn't teach them to create. They're now running the businesses. They're running the government positions. It's not personal. And this is where FYR becomes very interesting, Nick. So, and I see this from Retro. What, what the internet and the tools and technology becoming... Fourth Industrial fourth Revolution. Fourth Industrial Revolution. What the internet, because it's a buzzword, I, I, I just throw it in because everybody <laughs> likes to use it. But what no, the no, inter- how, how do you understand that term in terms yeah. of particularly so, South Africa? Or and Africa? understand it from the fact that we're in open world where the internet means that I can access anything, anytime, anywhere, which means I can access any information and use it to create a solution. Also think about it in the sense that what has intuitively started to happen is that cloud services, cloud computing, software services, ability to actually create f- software frameworks has become easier and more accessible. So not only will, is, is you having access to the internet, you, you can actually go to YouTube and you have videos on how to base, build a basic app, literally, um, and, and, I, and I mean this. So what 4IR means is that in an open world, technology is becoming more accessible. Well, programming has become very yeah. hip. I mean, it's, everyone's going to be a but, programmer, but everybody's it sounds going like. To be a software, every company is going to be a software company. Not everybody will be a programmer, but why is every company going to be a software company, Nick? Because all of us need data to inform your next decision. Because that's what Amazon and Facebook and Instagram are already doing, and that's why you spend time there. This whole conversation, Nick, is about our behavior has changed. We're creatures of convenience, choice, personalization, because... Mobility allowed that to happen. Cloud services allowed that to happen. Faster internet allowed that to happen. And those companies that got it built every single experience on top of all those constraints. And the scary thing is that faster internet is getting faster. Cloud services are becoming easier and more ubiquitous. Technology is becoming a lot more advanced, so it means we're going to solve a lot more problems. And all that means that the consumer is moving a lot further away from traditional business models to the point that banks will not exist as branches, call centers will not be a thing. It's already happening in South Africa, but people are not connecting the dots. The, the interesting thing about banks, and then we move to the next question, is that last year I was privileged to speak to the CEO of one of the banks in Uganda. This was last year in September. We had a two-hour session like this. We talked about innovation, where they can take their business. Uh, and we had a long discussion about repurposing their employees. And last year in September, I was telling him, look, if you're a bank CEO today, it is more important for you to have data points on your consumers and use, like F&B is a good example, and use softer people to inform where the consumer value is going to be next. And it is to have a branch. So you go to your branches and start training all these people because it's not hard to train now. The resources are there. Because what I was telling him is that like three months from now or six months from now, you're going to be closing those branches because Nick and I no longer go in. And there's no way we'll ever want to come back because now not only do we want you to do it digitally, we want every single transaction to be two seconds. So take your staff on a journey. And when South Africa, when Standard Bank announced in March that they're closing 100 branches and laying off 1,500 people, suddenly the whole country is up in arms. And it's the same country that don't want to go into branches. People are not connecting the dots. Technology is going to make our experiences better, but it means we have to shift the skills. Hmm. It has to happen, Nick. And that goes back to the education system. Yes. It goes yes. back to a sort of vision for the future yes. as well. So government policy needs yes. to be aligned to that yes. shift as well. I yes. mean, is it? No. And this is the point. The point of all the things you say, why some of us are passionate, is that we're not realizing that it's a full cycle impact on society. It's not just about business models. It's linked to you have to go back to reinventing the school system because people can create differently. You have to go back and repurpose people not to look for a job, but to create and to put the tools available for them to create. You have to talk openly in leaders that, you know, do we need the education system like this? You also have to talk openly, Nick, about reskilling because they want to hide mm-hmm. from the fact. But automation is happening. What we do in retro, being very transparent, is that we create a lot of automation software. Most of our clients, and we speak openly to them, is that when we finish the platform, you won't need 60% of your staff. Hmm. Yet the consumer will love it, but you will struggle to have the discussion of moving your staff. So that's a real sort of, I don't know, is it a contradiction or a dilemma? It is a dilemma. It's, it's, it's both, so it's both a contradiction and opportunity. It's, it's a real tough point. And when you ask me how I ended up in retro, is that, we st- I started to see these signs in Ericsson. 
And when you start to see the signs, you also start to realize, Nick, we were not intuitively prepared to see this new world of creativity. So a lot of the opportunities to transform become human nature, people getting into self-preservation mode. It's normal, Nick. It's normal that, you know, a guy will want to stand on stage and talk about 4IR and tech buzzwords, but he won't want to actually change his department or division because now if he automates, mm. his customers will like that better. So he's not linking the fact that if I make Nick's experience better, I have more of um. Nick's time. But if I'm going to make Nick's experience better, I'm going to have to simplify 80% of my backend. What we like to talk about at Retro and what government needs to talk about is that we can use these people differently. It's not you're, you're doomed. No. If we talk about reskilling now... Potential for something yes, else. Yes. Move the jobs. Move the skills. Why we are in a dilemma or contradiction is that it is happening already and we don't know how to have these conversations. Many, first of all, we don't understand. Secondly, and I hate to say it, power and control kicks in. Because people would rather preserve their control, which is what they've known for 20 years, than create an open environment where people create, where they don't seem to have control. Hmm. But it's a fascinating conversation, Nick. But what you are saying, so why I like to get passionate about this, it's not just about business. It's a fundamental shift in society. When you look at the job numbers, and I've, it has been frustrating me because for the last six months I said, make no mistake, every quarter they announce job numbers is going to be heavy unemployment. Because those industries, just... yeah, they're just going. You look around South Africa, under the surface, most big banks are restructuring. You look around, telcos are restructuring. It's just the value has shifted. The skills are different. Mm. And Retro, which is a software company, look at software companies. This is doing this. I just want to talk a little bit about you. Yes. <laughs> um, I don't like to talk about myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, you moved, you're from Uganda. You yes, grew up I am. In, in Kampala? Yes, yes, yes. Um, uh, what uh, what Why what sort move? of household uh, were, you, were you were you did you grow up in? Yeah, very. Um, I grew up in. Uh, were I your was parents very, professionals? Yes, I was very very fortunate. My dad is a university lecturer, so I think for us as four kids, education was ingrained in us very early. And this is in Kampala. Yeah. So okay. so so, I am from Uganda. Although I'm a creature of the world, uh, we spent about two years in Kenya because Uganda was going through political unrest. Uh, and so uh -huh. I wouldn't like to say my dad was, uh, uh, he, he, I think he was very active politically in okay, his university Okay, so he was a kind days. of dissident. Yeah, so, so he kind of left, what they call the right word, uh, he went into exile, right. for, the, for, for lack of a better word. Okay. Uh, so he moved to Kenya, worked in the university there, and then moved to Swaziland. Uh, so you've, you spend time in all of those countries yes. in your youth as well? Yes, yeah, so, and I think, okay. I think this has also been... Uh, huh. so I feel very fortunate because I think, on the one hand, obviously, my dad would prefer to have stayed in Uganda. On the other hand, having had the opportunity to work in different places for mm. us growing up and live yeah, in different places, yeah. it completely changed our, our view of life. But mm. also what it also did was that uh, it reinforced... The family, you know, when you travel as a family, you stay closer together. When you, when you ask me about myself, I think a lot of my success has been the foundation that I had. First of all, my dad was very, very strong on education. You know. What was his... Uh, what was his uh, so he's a professor, he's professor in theology uh, and Oh, ethics. my goodness. Yes. Uh, but that focusing on education, focusing on hard work... And just being in an open environment, I think it started to free our minds very, very early. But it so also kind of philosophical sort of background yes, as well, I yes, suppose, yes. being so, a theologian. Yeah, so w the journey was quite interesting, and a lot of it was in Swaziland. I only went back to Uganda, actually, for my A-levels. Mm -hmm. And then I did my first university degree there, and I worked with MTN in Uganda for two years, and then I went to the UK. That's why I'm saying I'm a little bit of a creature of the world. Right. Did my master's in the UK, and then my Ericsson journey actually started in the UK. So I was very fortunate to join the graduate program in Ericsson in the UK. Yeah. Uh, I did that for four years, but as you soon know, Nick, my mind never stops, and I was so <laughs> frustrated with the lack of opportunities to grow, and it just coincidentally tied up with the time Sub-Saharan Africa was exploding with GSM and mobility. Mm. So, so you moved back to so Africa? I moved, yeah, I moved back to Uganda in 2007 to head up the MTN account, actually, the mm. program office. Uh, and then it was such an exciting journey of growth Jeez, for I telco. I remember that, yeah. Yeah, and then mm. what happened is, how South Africa happened is in 2013, my then manager, uh, who was heading up uh, what you called consulting and system integration, where all our cloud services, uh, he thought uh, I would help grow the cloud operations in South Africa. So that's how I moved to South Africa. 
I love Joburg. It's been an exciting five, six years in South Africa. I never thought I'd leave Ericsson. You know, I was such an Ericsson man. Yeah. Uh, but also the industry changed so much in yeah. those four or five years I was in Joburg. I suppose that is a, I mean, a perfect sort of example of what, you, what you're talking about in a way. No, exactly. I mean, but I, I think just going back to that experience, it does show, I mean, I worked um, as a, a communications consultant uh, for Ericsson both in Sweden Yes. And uh, and in South and Africa, in South Africa yes. and um, I think one of the things I get from that is that that that's a real multinational yes. um, uh, organization, yes, and yes. and and the willingness just to to put so much faith in yes. in people yes. uh, and 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 value its its uh, yeah. uh, its employees and give them those opportunities to travel to yes. learn. I mean, 100%, Nick. It was such a fascinating journey. So, I mean, even I have so much uh, gratitude to Ericsson because the the opportunities I was exposed to, like you say, Mm. being a multinational company, you know, to work in different countries, to work in different environments, to work with different cultures, it just completely changed you as a human being. Uh, You grow up so much. uh, Uh, and a diversity of viewpoints is always great uh, mm. for growth and innovation. Totally. Um, and Ericsson was fantastic. And I mean, uh, to, uh, I still have a lot of, uh, um, um, I have a soft spot for them. I mean, they're also fantastic from a people perspective. Mm. You know, the ability to give you an opportunity totally. to try different things, yeah. to try different environments. Um, I honestly, the sad thing for me is I feel like a lot of Ericsson people didn't really leverage that enough. Mm. Uh, and I think that helped my journey. And even to the point of how I came into retro is like, it kept me curious because one, I had an opportunity a lot of the times uh, to move to different roles, uh, but you could challenge, you could question things, you couldn't always get them done. But the environment was open enough that you could challenge and question things. Yeah. Uh, and Is that ma- something you'd bring to this sort of organization? 100%. No, but 100%. But I mean, I, I think retro, I'm also learning a lot. I mean, it's, mm. you know, it's a pity one day you probably will meet the co founders, really fascinating human beings, uh, software uh, developers' background from University of Pretoria, uh, but incredibly creative and curious human mm. beings. And, mm. and we have a hashtag, be better. And, and the reality, the reason of that hashtag is that you never stop learning. Yeah. Uh, so one thing I did bring from here is just the encouragement that you do have to stay curious and, and creative because the last two years before I left Ericsson, I was heavily involved in innovation. Uh, so to encourage people here that this is the way, but it comes very intuitively to them here because of the culture. We mm. try and keep the company very, very flat. There are certain things we do to try and ensure that we encourage creativity. Uh, we, we really push people to solve problems. You know, We even have in our, a room in Pretoria in our head office that don't tell me you haven't solved a problem if you haven't Googled, or don't tell me you can't solve a problem if you haven't Googled, because we know a lot of the answers are out there. It's mm. just about how curious you are. So we, we stretch people like that. We throw them into environments where we have no clue what the client works once, mm. or we have no clue what the technology stack is going to be, but it's very easy to figure it out very quickly if you're just looking for answers. Yeah. Uh, and that kind of environment um, is a typical environment that you need in most companies. Yeah, going uh, with going the future, forward. we, we no, sort exactly. of that, yeah. and and that's the kind of environment coming to South Africa that we need to encourage. Yeah, not go look for a job. Mm. Learn how to create and solve problems. So, what does innovation mean for you then? Yeah, that's a <laughs> it's such an open-ended question, Nick. Uh, so interestingly, I talk about innovation a lot in a lot in my presentations, but for me, innovation is always about thinking about how to do things differently or how to to mm. to, to do things better. Um, the one thing about retro is that innovation for me is a culture. It's a way of thinking. It's not a department. It's not, a, it's, not an, it's not an ideas box. It's about challenging people to always look at doing things better. And it's also linked to curiosity and creativity. It's absolutely important because when we look at the world today and the companies that are growing and accelerating, they intuitively grow up with an innovation culture because they grew up in the internet substrate. So the fact that they accelerate and grow is because they never get stuck on an idea. The moment they solve your problem, they're always thinking about how to make it better. Hmm. You intuitively go to those platforms because what you don't understand in the background is that there are thousands of kids, always, always every day, thinking about, as soon as Nick has done, it's like, no, but tomorrow we can make it better. Um, and that, for me, is what started to make, what, that's what I started to connect innovation to. It's like, how do you always think about making things better? But it's not optional anymore, Nick. If you're not making it better for your subscriber, somebody else will. 
Um, mm. But it's not intuitive to us because why I say it's not intuitive to us is that it comes back to the whole conversation we're having and ultimately, Nick, it becomes a philosophical conversation. We were traditionally not trained. Our structures didn't train us to really create and be innovative. They really, it's, you know, for lack of a better word, I talk about how we were trained to go into factories. So today, most companies are just glorified factories. You're like that guy who moved a box, you just move emails. You have the same thing. You have a job description. You're told not to think outside your job description. You're given KPIs. And all those things constrain you in a world where you, know, you need to be freeing. And companies exist like that because of how society existed. We were, we were all about pushing a product out that society needed. Society was very close. It was scarcity. Scarcity and efficiency drove businesses. Society is now open. And when we enter a society where there is abundance and choice, you have to change how people think. It doesn't come intuitively to us, Nick. Um, I suppose the flip side of all of this is, um, I mean, a lot of these massive technology companies try and couch their work in sort of altruistic terms about sort of personalization Purpose, yeah. and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, convenience, uh, free stuff. Yes. Value, yes. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we have now this term surveillance capitalism where we all kinds of pawns yes. of these companies just building these massive, I suppose, AI yes. uh, machines yes. hoarding our data in order to change our behavior, not yes. really for our benefit, but for their benefit. Yes. I mean, and that's it's true. So I think there's good news. This is my personal opinion. And when some of us have been down this line, we also start to see that what is starting to happen intuitively with the world that is now open and where people have choices and younger generations are growing up with a lot more information, they're more driven by impact, problem solving than money. And what's starting to play out in the world, and you'll see so many examples, is that as a business, if you if you don't authentically have a strong sense of purpose or want to solve my problem, society is going to call you out. Uh, and what I mean by that is that the young generation are completely fearless. So when we talk about social platforms, social platforms today make or break organizations. The reason they are, making, they are breaking a lot of organizations, intuitively to your point, a lot of the organizations have deep capitalistic desires. Uh, so for lack of a better word, you know, they're not solving your problem. I, we can't use bad words in podcasts. But what happens is that the moment you mess up with uh, or you mess around with a modern day customer, the whole world knows about you instantly. And it's no longer a case that you're going to hire Nick, who is a fantastic PR guy, to put out the fire. You can't put out the fire. You're trending. Because some guys say Nick refused to receive my claim because he, may, he, he, said something, he, uh, he claimed I didn't I reveal something. And why, why I give this example is that why I say that I think that ironically I think there is hope is that you start mm -hmm. to see today that modern companies that have a deep sense of purpose are the ones that are doing really well and are growing because intuitively society can pick it up. Society can see that you care. Society is your policeman now. This is why Cambridge Analytica crashed. This is why Facebook is in a lot of scrutiny and, and problems. This is why you know, a lot of the companies that do things. I mean, even South Africa, so many examples how Momentum took a hit on their brand because of this, mm. and Woolworths took a hit because they tried to play around with a small supplier. Why? And that's why I say that I think there is good news. I think to a large extent we are going to go through tension, Nick, because it's surveillance capitalism. Modern, cap modern day capitalism, in my opinion, and without getting philosophical, we lost our way. We got so obsessed with quarterly profit and greed and whatever that we started to lose our way. And what that has happened, and this is why you have things like Steinoffs, what, what has happened is it's driven executives to the point of fraud, to the point of squeezing the customer. Always growth, always yes. growth, yes. always growth. Yes, exactly. It's not constructive. It's not sustainable. It's not sustainable. It's not mm. constructive. But you will be caught out. Uh, we will see more Steinoffs, this is my personal opinion, play out in the next two years. Because as these substrate happen, many companies are Just not... Globally? Yeah, globally. Many companies are not intuitively being honest about where they really are. They're mm. doing everything they can to show society a number that no longer exists. Mm. And that's playing out... It is, like you said, it is a capitalism, unfortunately, is connected. I cannot hold you accountable as an auditing firm if you're my biggest client. Say, imagine I'm PwC. You're my biggest client. You're Ericsson. This is not a good example. Let's use other fake companies. Oh, let's say I'm auditing firm X, and you're telecoms mag mag magnet Y. If I start to audit you and realize, actually, your earnings don't make good. sense, you haven't been declaring well, 
if I go out with that news, your sales will plummet, your share price will plummet, and suddenly I don't have my biggest client. So that means I can't make my quarterly number because you're paying me for the service. Mm. So what do we do? We say, Nick, let's talk about this. And then we make it up. And this is what's happening. I'm just giving an example. And that's why a sign-off happens, because that exec wants to show a quarterly number. So he doesn't, he's not as honest in his offering. And me, who would hold him honest, I want his paycheck. <laughs> It is scary, but when you start to see modern-day capitalism in action, it is a Ponzi scheme that's falling apart. But there's hope. There's hope because as retro, we see a lot of leaders in companies that are really trying to transform lives. There's hope because younger kids can now solve problems. The other day I was having dinner, and they were telling me about a 16-year-old who developed an app in Kruger and is giving it away to track animals. There's hope because now young generations can link problem to solution. And they're not driven by making money. They're going to expose it to the world. Hmm. But in the interim, we are going to go through a lot is of it, tension. Yeah, yeah. It's real, Nick. Your capital surveillance is real. Hmm. Um, just to maybe, you, you talk a lot to uh, businesses, to CEOs, but also, uh, as I understand it, to, to government, yeah. people in government. Yeah. Um, how do you, I mean, I think the president and one or two of his recent speeches, in particularly in South Africa, and I mean, as you say, we have the example of Rwanda, I yeah. suppose Kenya as yes. well as another and example, very, Ethiopia, yes. yeah, I think, yeah. to a degree, yeah. where technology is now an accepted form of, of government or improving government efficiency in yes. particular. Yeah. Um, but it does require a sort of mindset yes. as well that, 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 that sees that. And yes. do, do you... Do you, do you see that in South Africa, or what do you what what is your role then in convincing? So I, I am very pan-Africanist. So you mean even earlier when you asked, I'm from Uganda. I've lived in South Africa. I've managed teams across 20 African countries. I love the continent. I also think the continent gets a raw deal, because there's a lot of perception around the continent that forms prejudices that, in my opinion, shouldn't exist in the modern century. But why I say that is that South Africa is not unique in the African context of these incredible possibilities that we can use with technology. But like you said rightly, we have to start the conversation from a mindset change. So take government, and we don't have to personalize it to any government or any minister. If the president wants to drive efficiencies, that will actually make citizens access services much faster. But the real problem, Nick, is that it means that he's going to streamline and cut down government departments. And when I talk about mindset conversations, that you eventually struggle to drive the efficiencies because you get stuck in the political self-preservation jobs, da -da 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 the whole power thing is that, and you can't move. That sort of afflicts corporations. Yeah, exactly. As much as it, and, and, and so, to your point of mindset, and this is why I'm very passionate about that, is that even in my personal journey, in the last three years, it has been more of a philosophical change than a strategic change. What I mean by that is that I had to let go of defining myself by my Ericsson engineering role. And that's not easy because intuitively, mm. you know, we are That human. was your identity. Yeah, it is your identity. And this is exactly the point, Nick. Intuitively, that's very difficult. But when you go down that personal journey, and there's some things you can do it, when you start to let go, that's when the possibilities happen. If we start to take people on the journey, then the somebody in that department where you can drive efficiencies will not define himself by that role and will be more driven by efficiencies and know that he can move to do so many different things. If we don't have the honest conversations, Nick, in the country about reskilling and mindsets, you really are going to miss the boat. And that's why I'm saying that it's not easy because mm. people don't link the fact that I want to make a modern-day South African be able to click in KwaZulu-Natal somewhere and order his passport, and it's even delivered to him, not even collected. And he can do that all digitally. You don't need to be lining up at Home Affairs, which we do every other day for like hours. But if you do that, then you will need less Home Affairs mm. branches. And then what intuitive starts to happen is that when somebody in the department, because it always comes up, comes up with this idea, it gets killed in the politics and self-preservations and labor unions and whatever. And then, you know, Africa has political cycles. Then the political party in power, I won't mention names, will think that it's more important for me to do the right thing politically than the right thing for society. Mm -hmm. So we'll delay preserving jobs. If we looked at the parastatals in this country without mentioning job names, all of them, all of them without exception, have to go through massive efficiencies. It's not even optional. But we're delaying the inevitability because it's a political discussion. When you delay the inevitability, you put the country at more of a crisis. Hmm. If the president, and I think also sometimes, Nick, intuitive, the president doesn't have all the wisdom, if he could see these things, 
he would have to do it. The last point on that is that when you ask me why, if I'm in a conversation with a company, not out of arrogance, I want to be in the room with the CEO because I know the transformation is not an easy thing. If I can't be in the room with the CEO, I know we cannot impact it because the CEO is going to have to make tough decisions. Leadership. Leadership. He'll either have to take his people on the journey and when he fails, he'll then have to make tough decisions. This is not a technology shift. It's a mindset shift. Mm. The technology is just meaning that we can do things differently. It's leadership. Um, just quickly, uh, as we come to a close here, th you have this rabbiteers yes. sort of workshop program. Yes. And I want you to talk a little bit about that. But I saw one of the things that you uh, that forms a component of these workshops is bridging the gap between university yes. and the workplace. And I just wonder. Yeah. No. I mean, look. I mean. Kind of yeah. Let, let, let's let's move away from the philosophical. So one of the one of the reasons I joined Retro is apart from really believing in the culture and the philosophies that we really care about. You know, trying to give back. I think and and giving back is we intuitively see that a lot of what we do as a company uh, has so much potential for growth. As in what I mean, like the capabilities we have. So when we talk about software development, uh, so one we're fascinated about meeting young university people running these coding programs, running uh, sessions at universities to encourage people, but also we're also fascinated about running product programs for young girls, for young kids. You know, we also have programs where people can bring their kids who are three to four year old and we run basic coding programs. <laughs> and, the only, and it's because we see the world. I don't, think, I'm not, I don't want us to call ourselves futurists. We see the incredible potential well, not with of the, great what, Not with the word retro in your title. <laughs> <laughs> no, we see the incredible potential of writing software. You know, it's, it's incredible, Nick. And even when I say that, I'm excited about where Retro is going to be in five years' time in the continent because we see the growth that we're having. Even just in the first six months uh, that I've been in this company, we're already opening an office in the country. We're already recruiting people. We sometimes even are turning down work because we are not growing fast enough mm. to the, for the demand. There is so much demand for software development, not in the sense that it's only about coding. It's about the fact that data allows us to make decisions that make consumers' lives better. UX designers, you know, people who build their front-end experience, there's so much demand for that. We're not intuitively seeing it. Uh, we have to flatten the structures, train kids to get into these areas and allow them to create and they'll run. It's amazing, and when we finish this, I'll show you some of the stuff we're doing. Like, you know, it's amazing the kind of technology solutions and products people come up with here. And I sometimes go show a CEO, and then when I tell him it was a 20-year-old guy in South Africa who did this, he can't believe it. He, he thinks it was six months of R&D in an Ericsson lab or something. In Silicon Valley or whatever. So we invest, we're very, very, we're very, very, uh, we're a very deeply purposeful company, and we really, really believe in being better. When we say be better, it's not just about making our partners better, it's about really trying to get people on this journey that we're going. Mm. Uh, to the extent that for us, if we're in business or we have a partner and we don't believe that we're going to add value, we will leave that relationship. Because if we can't add value as retro, we're not interested. But it's a fascinating world, Nick. Uh, if you have young people, encourage them to come to the Rabbitia's program. You can give them my details, uh, and we'd love to get in touch with them. Uh, we're trying to create a lot more opportunities here in South Africa, Certainly. and we're trying to create a lot more opportunities in the continent, but we're also trying to shift the mindset, more mm. importantly. That's so cool, Edgar. Thanks a lot for your time this morning. No problem. We shall catch up again. far out stuff there uh yeah i was you know s some of those things you he mentions uh, you haven't i suppose i certainly haven't sort of fully considered impact of machine learning and artificial intelligence and just the nature of work and 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 jobs uh, what is a job what is work is going to be uh, it seems completely different our definitions our understanding need to need to change you also so did raise some concerns about the direction and state of modern day capitalism, this continuous growth cycle, um, and also what we refer to now as surveillance capitalism. I think for me, you know, it's it's kind of it's hard to imagine a world without constantly evolving technology and how that technology is going to impact our our behaviour. He talks about this constant demand for convenience and personalization, speed, speed, speed. But at the same time, you know, what are the consequences? Have we fully comprehended the consequences for humans and for the planet uh, as a whole? 
So it'll be something I'll certainly come back to in future episodes. Voices from SA is hosted on Audio Boom. You may also subscribe to Voices from SA via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Radio Public Deezer, or indeed wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your colleagues, tell your friends, tell the world. Until next time, I'm Nicholas Claude. Cheers. Cheers.